Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my old L.A. running mate, Matt B. Davis. Matt is the face of obstacle racing media and widely considered an obstacle course industry expert. His office, knee-deep mud, eight-foot walls, and 20-foot rope climbs. Matt just doesn't write and talk and produce obstacle racing content. He lives it. Since doing his first Warrior Dash back in 2010, he's completed over 130 obstacle races of all distances. Matt has had his finger on the pulse of the sport of obstacle racing from all perspectives, be it elite athletes, weekend warriors, or first-time race participants. Matt also wrote a book about OCR and has been quoted in countless publications and featured in the obstacle racing documentary, Rise of the Superfest. Matt also hosts his own podcast called The Atlanta Podcast. A former stand-up comic turned sort of athlete, Matt lives in Atlanta, Georgia, with his beautiful and patient wife and three beautiful kids, Emma, Jackson, River. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? You know, that intro, most of that intro was written by my initial partner in this business, Obstacle Racing Media. And man, he, he really crushed it. That's a nice little intro. Um, I've done well over 200 races now. That was written a while ago. Um, and, uh, but I think it pretty much well describes me. The one, one correction, Rise of the Sufferfests is the name of this documentary. It's really good. It's about obstacle racing. It's about why do we do this? Is it, uh, is it because we've gotten too comfortable in our little cubicles? Is it some search for manhood? It kind of asks all these big questions. It's got a bunch of talking heads that you've probably heard of. And then me. So like Tim Ferriss is in it. Morgan Spurlock is in it. A few of these other people. And then me. But anyway, it's really good. Rise and Supper Fest. Check it out. You can buy it on Amazon, I think. Great. Well, let me ask you a totally different question. Sure. Uh, how are you doing today? Like mentally, how am I doing today? <laughs> how are you? Well, you know, the show is called Time Out for Mental Health. I don't believe in effing around. Let's get right to it. <laughs> January of. No, 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 no. Sounds great. Let me frame our discussion, then we'll drill down into specifics. Matt, you started as a stand up comic and also dabbled as an athlete before sinking your teeth into obstacle racing and podcasting. Can you tell us about all those experiences? 
I can I can probably summarize. I did stand up for ten years. It's all I ever wanted. I, I knew I couldn't work for the man. I knew that early, early in my life. I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew I couldn't work for the man. All my friends said I was funny. Dude, that ice is rocking, man. You are, you are, whoever's your editor can edit out that beautiful ice chomping. <laughs> you can always hit mute, dude. <laughs> just hit mute on your end for a second. I'm just, um, so it's all I wanted to do. And uh, I thought it was going to be my, you know, key to all kinds of happiness. Um, and then I started my first business and then slowly got out of stand up. And it wasn't like a, there wasn't a big aha. There wasn't, I quit show business. This is it. It was just, oh, I guess I'm not doing this anymore. And I, I started my first business. Uh, and people would always ask me, like, do you miss it? Do you want to do stand up? And I had no desire to do stand up, but I knew somewhere in here was this like, like, you know, you and I have, have been in some circles where we talk a lot about higher purpose and I knew I had one and I just didn't know what it was. Um, cause I knew that staffing conventions was not what, you know, God put me on this earth to do, right? Like that's, there's gotta be something out there. And I did one of these races. I did my first one in 2010, but then in 2012, I did, a, I did a Spartan. I did a Tough Mudder. Most of your audience have probably heard of these events and I can't tell you where the light bulb went off, but something said, why don't you talk about this? Why don't you start a podcast? So in 2012, there were not 10 million podcasts or however many there are now, uh, but there were none about my sport. And very quickly, I became the industry expert guy, again, without trying. It just seemed fun to me to, to talk to people about this stuff. And that's what slowly got me out of the staffing company and into what now everyone calls a content creator. And again, I did not set out to do that. Um, but once I started doing it, it was like, oh, I think I can make a go at this. So then I just pushed really hard on writing articles and doing podcasts and making videos. And now that's what I do. And for the sport that I love, and I, I really, you know, I get up every day and create something and it fills that void that I thought I had with stand up, but if we want to, you know, get into it later, stand up was certainly, certainly a lot of the wrong reasons. Uh, so I don't know if you want to sort of ask based on that, but yeah. No, it's great. I, I really enjoy, I think our audience will enjoy what you just said. It's, it's very interesting. So can you share your personal story with our audience today? How did you get here? Did you experience any major challenges in your life that you had to really work hard to overcome? Gen like generally or like sobriety based or like mental health based? Like that's a very broad, can you be more specific? Well, uh, sobriety and mental health. Yeah. So I moved to LA in 1999. Sorry. Yeah, the fall of 1999, and my thought was I'm going to do as many drugs and drink as much as possible. I'm going to get really famous. I'm going to have sex with a lot of, you know, actresses. Like that's that Hollywood Hills, like, party lifestyle that I was sold over the years. And that, that was, you know, it's funny. Talk about what a higher purpose was. Back then at 24, that is honestly my dream. If you said, Matt, what's your dream? would be like, oh, to party in the Hollywood Hills and 
get laid and and do a bunch of drugs. Like that was the plan. Um, and I ended up getting sober from drugs and alcohol within 30 days. Like that's the beauty of a town like LA. You can hit bottom really fast. <laughs> um, I mean, people, you know, people always say like you hear people share in the rooms like, oh, well, I moved here and, you know, that's a big party town. It's like, listen, you're going to find it wherever, right? Like it says in the big book, it talks about, you know, we'll find if we're in Alaska, we'll find the Eskimo or whatever, the St. Bernard with the booze, whatever that analogy is. So I got sober um, pretty quickly. uh, But if we're getting really real here, Tim K., uh, my core addiction, if that, if such a thing exists, my core addiction is sex addiction. I'm a sex and love addict. And trust me, I'm, I'm sober in AA at one day at a time and to drink is to die for me. Like I get that a thousand percent, but the thing that's going to kill me the fastest is the, is the other stuff. And so I've been sober now, you know, I just turned 21 in October, but I didn't get sober for, uh, for the SLA stuff till much later. And like a lot of us that are in those programs, it's a little different, right? There's no plug in the jug per se. So it's okay. There's 10 years away from, you know, from prostitutes, five years away from like all that kind of stuff. Um, and here's the thing that happened to me. Um, so I was, it was funny because I was going to tell you, you know, tell you when I got in the shower this morning, I was thinking that it was, it was four years ago that I hit that I had my mental health bottom where <laughs> um, you know, the way my wife puts it, like I always kind of ran hot, right? Like I'm a pretty intense guy, you know me. And so I, that life was how it was. Right. And um, what happened in the fall four years ago, fall winter was uh uh, I was manic as hell and didn't know it. Um, now, when I tell people that dyeing your hair blonde doesn't mean you're having an episode, but I can tell you that that's what I did. <laughs> and when people ask me, I was like, "What? What are you talking? No, like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, what's this? No issue with that." Um, and um, I, you know, I read this thing how like manic people spend crazy. And, you know, fly off to Paris and like, well, I never did that. Uh, But what I did do was there was a period of a few weeks that I was driving to like four different Target stores a day trying to buy these things and like flip them on the internet. These things called Funko Pops. I don't know if you know what those are, but just, just some pretty wacky behavior that was normal to me at the time. And then Tim, you know, I wanted to die. You know, I wanted to kill myself. And... I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I, you know, I think the worst, like to try to explain to people what this stuff is, not for me, not being able to trust my own thoughts was the worst thing. Cause my mind was telling me horrible, horrible things. And I knew deep down that it wasn't true. And, um, you know, I could get emotional now talking about it because I would, you know, people say things like, you know, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I, 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 I wouldn't. And it turns out, you know, I was diagnosed bipolar. So here I am, 45 years old, 17 years sober at the time, and at this horrible, horrible bottom. 
and uh, meds weren't working, meds weren't working. You're like, well, the next thing we can try is some outpatient. If that doesn't work, we'll try inpatient. So I go to, uh, I go to my first day of this uh, outpatient treatment place, a place called Ridgeview here in Atlanta. And I look around and I'm like, you know, there's a guy who's, uh, who has conversations with inanimate objects. There's like a guy who's like two days off of heroin. There's a guy like who, you know, cuts himself, whatever. And I had one of those experiences like, well, why am I in here? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, 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 like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in here too. And it's funny because you hear people say that in, in the rooms all the time of A, like, well, I don't have a problem. These... So anyway, I, um, long way of saying that um, uh, I feel like in many ways, like my life started then like everything else was prelude to 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 this because now tim mental health is everything to me getting enough sleep is everything to me getting exercises like people are like well how do you make sure you get enough sleep i'm like it's not optional because i know what i'm like so i know that's a ton uh but you know i don't know where you want to go from there but that's kind of that's my story no that's great um, you know, we're friends and, and I have known a lot of that story, but I didn't know it all. And I think it's a lot like mine because, you know, yes, I was, I was using, but, um, I didn't know how badly my mental health issue was. I didn't know I had severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and that that was driving my addiction so i relate and uh you know that, that that's a really good explanation for everybody to understand exactly who you are did you ever think growing up that you'd be working full-time at obstacle racing media well that's i mean that's what's so nutso is as a young man tim crass uh, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I, I, I loved watching sports and I loved, so like, if you think like my first heroes, well, I'm not kidding. We're like Bob Costas and Howard Cosell. And so the fact that one day I woke up and that's kind of what I was doing, um, I've gotten to actually, well, first of all, I cover a sport, so that's what I do, but I've also been able, like I've been hired to consult, um, we, there's, we did the show for ESPN and I, I did some Facebook live stuff for this race where I actually got to commentate. And I thought like, holy moly, like, you know, you know, we make plans and God laughs, right? Like I came to it. Like there's another version of the story where like I go some traditional route where I work for some local station when I'm 20 years old and work my way, you know what I mean? But that's not the path that I went. Um, so the fact that I ended up doing this thing that honestly, I, I really love that. I like, it rarely feels like work to me. Like I get to like doing this, talking to you is what I do for my show. And it's, I love it. It's like, let's just talk. But I, I just, I have to say before we go further that, you know, the biggest, like, you know, my, like I acted out, if not every day, then pretty much, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so I got married 
we started having kids, none of that changed. None of that changed um, because that's just who I was. So the best I can surmise is that that's where this mental health break is that when I finally, finally got sober, I finally didn't like finally stopped acting out and stopped all the everything else. I was left with nothing but my feelings in my brain. And it was like, I think that's what happened, why it happened so late for me. Uh, because I was um, uh, using essentially like every day of my life. And um, there's this, I remember when I first got sober in the S rooms and the SLA rooms, there were basically like these two camps, like the disclosure camp and the don't disclose camp. And I was a thousand percent in the don't disclose camp. And when I was caught, you know, having an affair and I finally got honest with my wife, really, really honest with my wife, everything changed, everything changed. And, um, that's why I feel like, like, I feel like my life started and we feel like our life started. And because, we went to therapy together and she worked her programs. You know, she worked Al-Anon and SNON. We have an amazing relationship now and I just feel super fortunate. But, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about some other stuff, but I just have to say like that was like, you know, acting out was like, like your weed habit. Just it's what I did. It, it was never not going to be there. Yeah. So there you go. Totally get it. Um well, you've reached great heights in your profession, which is awesome. Let me ask you, what drives you to such a high level of excellence in that area? When did you know that you this is what you wanted to do? I, I gotta say it 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 keeps getting more and more rewarding. Early on, Tim, I didn't know how to appreciate it because why are people applauding me for what comes so naturally to me? I was so used to struggling and beating myself up and, you know, four steps forward, 10 steps back. Like that was my life. Just that kind of, I just say typical addict life. So now I'm rewarded for being essentially being me. Like in my world, I'm pretty well known, right? Outside of my world. No, but if I show up at a race, Right. People like if people meet a friend and they find out they're into this, they'll say, oh, do you listen to Matt's podcast? You know, what I mean, like it's just I've done really well in this field. And so and it really has come from this super honest place of. I enjoy doing this and it's that old, old, old adage, do what you love and the money will come. Now, it doesn't come as quick as I want. My bank account fluctuates. I got five mouths to feed, including my own. So like. I've, I far from sitting on my laurels. Um, but I feel like just trusting my gut and then, yeah, just trusting my gut and really trying hard not to let go of the results. I mean, of course I, I'm on social media. I look at numbers, I look at views, I look at all that stuff, but really trying to just keep doing good stuff. And yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's great. That's great. So with all this, how would you describe your style of business that you use? Is there a central message that you try to get across? Mm. Um, What people say about me when they do say nice things is 
they say, hey, you don't pull any punches. We know that we can trust you to be real and to be honest because first of all, sadly, you know, media has a bad name these days. It didn't when you and I were growing up. I mean, yes, of course, there was always, you know, uh, yellow journalism or whatever it's called, propaganda. Of course, the media has always been that and it's could be tricky with business, but it certainly wasn't this world of fake news and yada, yada. And so in my particular sport, I think like in any sport, it's, well, if I'm nice to these people, I'll get favorable coverage. I'll get favorable content. I'll get free things. And uh, I've been willing to be straight with people and good, bad, or indifferent. And I think that's what people count on me for. And again, Tim, like, I don't know how to do it any other way. I don't have a good poker face. So I don't know how any other way, but to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes when that's the case. So, so again, like it comes to me naturally. I don't know any other way to be. Great. And what do you think the most challenging aspect of your experiences has been? In business? <laughs> whatever. Whatever comes to mind. I mean, if you ask me what my biggest challenge today, I would say my kids. You know, kids haven't been in school and my daughter's been fine with it. My sons have not. Uh, so that's my wife and I's biggest struggle today. Um, you know, again, like money up and ups and downs we can deal with, but, and I'm not saying they should be back in school because, you know, they shouldn't be until people feel like it's safe enough, but that's the biggest, I mean, um, and then just, I, I, you know, from a business perspective, uh, just the, just the ups and downs of it, you know, like. I make, I make money sometimes outgoing, sometimes incoming, and it's always easier when it's incoming, right? When, this, when the lead comes to you rather than you having to smile and dial. You, you know what I mean? Yep. So what can you tell us about the most gratifying experience that you've had in this whole life of Matt B. Day? <laughs> the most gratifying experience yeah i mean you know having a wife and kids is is pretty awesome if i'm if i pay attention to it right um you know i i spent some time with you know river this morning he's my youngest and he runs around the house like a lunatic and he's all happy and he's spinning this dreidel because hanukkah's about to start and you know i could get teary-eyed about that just thinking about it but he, five minutes later, he can maybe drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> Wonder where but, I get that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but I'd say, uh, you know, I do gratitude lists. And a lot of times I write, sometimes I write the same, I try to do 10 things every day. Sometimes I write some of the same things. And what I write when I write about my wife is usually having my wife as my teammate. You know, she is my, she is on, she's my partner in a, the truest sense. And we've got to learn this together. Cause again, she's sober a long time. She's got her own issues. And um, unfortunately, most of the men that we see in the S rooms, they don't get that. And I can't speak to the women cause they're not, I, I just see mostly men. So, you know, their wife's like, yep, my wife found out she's gone. 
or my wife, my wife found out and I'm living in the basement and she treats me like shit. And again, like it's not to blame them because when trust is taken away, you know, the slap in the face that you, that's there, um, it takes a long time to get back. And I know there's part of it. She'll never get back. And we have this healthy relationship with it now where we'll just say, you know, like, um, you know, I don't, I'm usually not on the phone late. So if I decide to check my phone late, she'll just, she'll just say, she'll go, Hey man, that was triggering for me last night. You're on the phone and I just need to check in with you and we can have a real conversation and I don't need to be a defensive lunatic because I have nothing to hide anymore. I mean, there was a time that I wouldn't even put my phone like remotely close to her. And I look, Tim, I look back on that, on that man, on that guy. And it, it, it pains me because it's not, it's not me. Like, like who was that guy? Like that was willing to do that stuff to put his family in harm's way and, and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, again, there's some stuff in the, in the, in the literature about, you know, being rocketed in the fourth dimension and seeing a whole new world about us. And that's, that's the promises like that stuff's come true for me. So I'd say that's probably the greatest thing is watching the promises come true for me. I can totally relate. I love that. I love that. Let me ask you during your, your working experience, your career, did you ever get down on yourself and feel that the work at that level was just too challenging for you? It's not that it was too challenging, but it was that, is there enough like business here? Like we had kind of this boom bust 2012, 2014, like 2010 to 2012, like there was an article or a story about these crazy races everywhere, 60 minutes, every magazine. And then it, kind of leveled off and there's been a few times where it's been like it did i make did i bet on the wrong horse uh and i still feel that way sometimes um because it is a niche sport it's never going to be the nfl so that's i'd say my biggest struggle is when that's happening is like oh like has the well run dry can i get money from people so i'd say that would be and so then did you ever bring your work home with you and did it affect your feelings and emotions and how'd you deal with that? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's like, again, I used to just tell my wife, like, Hey, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. If there was money issues. And now we have real conversations about it. And, you know, just looking at the first, you know, four years of that business, or the first, sorry, the first, first two years of that business before I got honest with my wife and before I got really sober, you know, from the sex stuff. Um, I just never really told my wife the truth about anything. You know what I mean? And then once we got honest about all the bank accounts and all the business, and now we just talk about stuff. Whereas before it'd be like, Hey, I'm going on this trip. Like if you asked me, I thought I was this pretty good dad and husband, but really I was like this guy who acted out a lot, who sort of had a wife and kids at home. Like, honestly, I had it flipped. Um, and so now, you know, we talked about money this morning and again, it's, it's on honesty. It's like the core of everything. So without that, uh, then I got no shot and my family has no shot. So what, what flipped for you as far as dealing with your feelings and emotions and, you know, being honest with your wife and being honest with yourself, what, what, 
what happened? Did you ask for help or? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've asked for a lot of help over the years. I, you know, was in a men's group that you and I were in, lots of 12 step, lots of seminars, lots of books. And I just, there's no other explanation other than I hadn't hit bottom yet. And I had to almost lose everything and really almost lose it. Like really, really almost lose it. And I remember specifically when I first got honest, I had a slip like a year later and told my wife about it and she kicked me out and I was sure that this was over. You know, I'm sure my life was over. And I called a buddy, the program buddy, and he said, you are going to be okay no matter what. And I didn't really hear it. And he was saying like, whether she lets you back in or not, you are going to be okay. Like God's got you. And I remember that to go from despair to like this tiny glimmer of hope um, and then doing the work. And it's been, you know, a lot of work since. Great. Cause a lot of men can't ask for help. And this is a big reason why I wrote my book and, and do my podcast is because 300 million people in the world have depression, but only half of those get help. Really? And I saw my opportunity, my biggest opportunity to make change in the world is targeting those, those people, which are mostly men who don't ask for help. And I found that masculinity norms that we all grew up with from our father who was just doing their best and um, the media, you know, man pounding their chest being john wayne i can handle it man up all that stuff right so you know men have a problem trusting other men as we know and when we do that and ask for help and talk about our feelings and emotions this it's like moses parting the red sea it's like you can be your real self and your authentic self and access help but guys still have a problem with it yeah and i gotta say actually how this all fits in with my business is that i had to i had to talk about this right i couldn't not talk about it i was on the microphone once a week minimum and i talked about wanting to kill myself and i was so afraid and you know, people, do people care? Like what? And I knew, listen, I'm pretty well known in this industry. I knew I'd get some, Hey Matt, you can do, I knew I'd get a few, the amount of messages I received was so overwhelming. I literally couldn't answer them all. Um, and people who said people don't understand depression. People don't understand mania. People don't understand bipolar. People don't understand you know, you name it unless they either have it or like, Hey, my wife lives with it and it's really bad. And I, it's so hard to deal like, you know, cause you can't do anything. We just watch the people we love suffer. And so, so many people, like, I just had no idea what that, and people still come up to me like at events, like, like, Hey man, how you doing? And you know, I've been through this or, you know, you know, my dad, my mom, whatever it is. And Tim, I feel like I forget sometimes because I have been doing, 
I have been in circles for a long time, really since I'm a kid, you know, 24 years old, over 20 years, I've been in, in the thing of helping. So I forget sometimes that not everybody has access to it or is super afraid to just tell someone, Hey man, like I, I'm, you know, I'm not doing okay. Yep. Okay. Let's look at your nuclear family while you were growing up as a kid. <laughs> Oh, well, we didn't start here. <laughs> Tell me, where, where did you grow up? I don't even know that. Oh, my goodness. I was born in Brockton, Mass. Uh, oh, really? Lived there for seven years. Then we moved down here to the south, and this is where I grew up with my mom and stepdad. My mom and dad divorced when I was two. Mm. Uh, my dad what, my dad also, active alcoholic, active sex and love addict, um, but he got he started getting sober when I was like 13. And did do you have any brothers or sisters? I have three older sisters. Really? Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you, ever showing you love, discussing emotions and feelings? Well, the first word I would use is absent. Like that's the first, my first thought of my dad. Um, and then because he did the men's weekend, got sober himself, our relationship changed. He reached out to me and for the next, you know, however many years, we were very, very close. He just passed away like two weeks ago. My dad did. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, so my dad was my hero in many, many, many ways um, because he showed me the way, you know, he dug the well for me, as we say, um, in terms of all this, stuff like i wouldn't i probably would have found this stuff eventually but he's the one who you know i went to these men's team meetings with him when i was 12 or 13 i went to a meetings with him when i was a kid um so uh it's interesting if i would have a different answer two weeks ago right when i might have had a still holding on to some resentments uh but it's like he just died yeah did you guys ever spend time talking uh, what it was like to be a man and masculinity? And Yeah, I'm bl super blessed that way because, you know, I have a stepfather who's the opposite. I have a stepfather who we never talked about anything, whether in sports, you know, the typical things that some people have with their parents. But my dad and I had a real honest conversation all, all the time, all the time apologize to each other, love each other, cry together, yell at each other. We had a very, very masculine relationship and I feel super like blessed as they say that I had that with him. Um, I know it's pretty rare and um, yeah, we talked about this stuff all the time. Cool. And so during that time of you growing up, did it ever or now, did it ever occur to you that yesterday and today's masculinity norms prevent you or other men from asking for asking for help if you needed any or for fear of being labeled not a real man? I mean, I grew up pretty, like, I think I was a late bloomer. You know, I have three older sisters and a mom and a stepdad who's also no longer with us, but who wasn't wasn't really that much of a masculine presence. I was essentially raised by women. And I would say 
not the most masculine man and looking to them for approval and all that stuff. Uh, and then when I did, you know, I did this thing called the men's weekend and when I was 24 and that changed for me, that let me know that there was other men out there that I could tell the truth with. Um, and that could call me on my bullshit and that could help me help me find out who I really was, not this person who, who needed to please mommy or, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Let me talk about abuse a little. Uh, I experienced a lot of abuse while growing up, which led to my severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. Was there any evidence of abuse in your family, physical, mental, emotional, verbal? I mean, what's the what what's the word for my my mother you know to this day is very passive aggressive manipulative martyr she's not someone i want to talk to a lot and uh, it's unfortunate it really is you know people in, I remember in recovery, people are like, oh, I'm 10 years sober now. And when you can, you know, rejoin your parents and it's this amazing relationship. And I kept thinking that was going to happen for me. And then I was mad that it didn't happen for me. And now I've accepted, like, it's, it's okay. Like my, my mom is not very, what's the word? Uh, evolved that way. And she's not going to be and I can love her for who she is and choose to have her in my life as much or as little as I want. And lately it's a little because it's not a place that I feel safe going to. Another thing that I talk about in my book is that if depression or bipolar, any, any kind of mental health issue is not checked, then that leads to risky behavior um acting out alcoholism pill addiction everything across the board um so obviously you you weren't aware of your mental health issues and do you understand that because of that that drove a lot of your risky behavior It did when I finally, when I started getting help for my mental health stuff and realized like, oh, like I was in so much pain all the time that that's what life was. Life was, I mean, when I tell you like acting out was just who the fuck I was, Tim. I mean, it's like, it, it, I didn't know any other way. Like I didn't, I didn't. So again, like even getting married and having kids, the idea of being faithful was like never an option. It's like, which I know is like now I see is not normal. Yeah. Uh, because there was so much, there was so much pain there. Uh, I mean, you know, my mom and dad splitting when I was two, only you understand conceptually that that's, but having my own children and seeing what a two-year-old looks like and what that 
might be to wake up one day and not have daddy there is pretty fucking crushing. I don't know if you can cuss here or not, but too late. And that and that's how I started. Like that's how life starts. And then like then game on from there, right? Yeah. All right. Well, now you're married. You got three lovely children. How would you characterize yourself as a father? Easy, loving, tough, abusive in any way? Do you yell and scream? Stacy and I have definitely, well, I'll speak for me. Um, I've definitely been abusive verbally. Um, when they were younger, I think like we tried spanking <laughs> and it just, it only makes the, it worse because my kids are like me. You know what I mean? Don't want to be told what to do. Uh, <laughs> being yelled at doesn't work for them. Right. Like, like, and when that occurred to me, it started to shift like, Oh, you, you know, I don't like being told what to do either. So to, what works for my boys is an unbelievable amount of patience and tolerance that I didn't know I have in me. And I work on, we have to work on every day because it's the only thing that works and it doesn't work. Have you read, have you heard of this book? Uh, the explosive child, there's this doctor that kind of specializes in it and it talks about how they're not bad kids. They're lagging. They're lagging in certain skills. Um, and, it's a really good book for, for, and this guy has podcasts and I forget his name, but, um, so for me, I know I'm loving, but I know that doesn't matter. Like, let me rephrase that. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that, you know, my mother said, I love you and hug me all the time. And it, it doesn't change, you know, it doesn't change. Um, what I experienced, what I felt, how I was treated, how I was punished. Um, so I, they have no doubt. I love them. I can tell you that they're not someone that's like when I, when I, I remember being, I do remember being a kid and <clears throat> going to friends' houses where they didn't eat dinner together, where like the dad sat over here and the mom sat over there, or they didn't like hug and kiss hello and goodbye. And I was like, that's because that's, you know, we, that's the kind of family that, that we were. And that's the kind of family that we are. So my kids know I love them. There's no doubt about that. I tell them all the time. I'm super affectionate. Um, but yeah, they'd probably say dad has a little bit of an anger problem. So I'm working on it. Good. And when you encounter other people with mental health issues, such as anxiety or depression, what, what do you recommend to them? Uh, see a therapist, start with, usually. Um, you know, it's tough, man. Like, like what addict doesn't have mental health issues and the other way around. So it's like, you know, I have a guy I work with who, you know, said, Hey, I might want to get sober and you go, oh, you want to check out some meetings? Nah, I tried those. They don't work. <laughs> so where do you go from there? Right. Can't make the guy go to meetings. Right. So, uh, therapy is always like the one that I think is the least scary to people. Um, so that's usually where I start. Right. And I try not to get in the whole like meds conversation because people always want to do that. Like, well, what are you taking? It's like, it doesn't matter. Like whatever works for you works for you. Uh, but see someone that you like. Yeah. 
and trust. Um, all right, so everything that we've discussed, you've had a lot of experiences. So what have you learned? What have you taken out of all of those experiences? Like what's the most important thing I've learned? Yeah. Mental health is absolutely number one. I have to take care of that or everything else is out of the picture. So for me, it's, you know, number one, take my meds, which some people say like, oh, well, of course you do, but some people don't. Um, I mean, of course, like any good, you know, person, I've thought like, maybe I don't need these anymore. And then my wife goes, do you, wanna, do you remember what it was like, like for you? Like, I don't want to live with that guy. <laughs> so uh, I take my meds. Uh, I get plenty of rest. I exercise. I eat really well. Um, and any one of those things gets a little wonky. Then I can, And that's the other thing now that I think getting sober helps is that I notice it, right? So sometimes like a couple days a year, usually I'll get up early and like start working on something really early at work. And that's the thing that was where I hit my bottom is I was up at like five o'clock and just like, oh, this is amazing. I'm getting so much stuff done. And looking back, I had a ton of those. Looking back at the last 20 years, I had a lot of those where, you know, that's the great thing about being manic. You are crushing it. <laughs> and nobody can tell you different, right? Um, until, you know, again, the bottom falls out and you want to die. So if I, if I wake up early a couple days and, and kind of, you know, my wife will just ask me, like check in around it. Um, I try not to have caffeine late, like after five o'clock. That's a big one, I think. Um, you know, you said we, we started the call before we recorded about slowing down. Uh, we are in bed by 8.30 to 9 watching Netflix. My wife's asleep by 9.15. I'm asleep by 10, 10.30. And if you would have told me that would be my life, I would think, well, it's like when people get sober, they're like, well, my life's going to be boring. Like, I, I, I love my life. I, I try to get as much out of it as I can in a day and do the best I can do and more than willing to go to bed early. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because my mind goes to me growing up and my mother having an ironclad rule that I had to go to bed at nine o'clock. No matter what age I was. Really? Yeah. And, you know, of course, as a kid, I would stomp and yell and scream and all that. But now that I look back at it and, and listen to you, that's, it, it's ingrained in me. Like at nine o'clock now, that is my signal to start shutting down the day turning off all the screens, start to do some, some step work to see what went right and what went wrong during the day so I can be the best version of myself the next day. And, you know, it's just amazing that that, that was what I experienced. And I was so pissed at my mother. And now I look back, especially when you just said that, and I'm like... I'm grateful that, that she did what she did. Yeah, I definitely, I have a rule about like, I don't, I, early on, I decided if I'm in the car and I'm on a phone call for work, I'm not going to walk inside like on the phone. 
Okay, I'm going to finish the call in the car. I'm going to be present for the family, right? And I've, I've, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm pretty darn good. Uh, and then I definitely don't work, right? Like I shut the laptop down. I don't even open it at the house most days. But once in a while I do. And then what do you know, an hour or two later, I can't sleep. And it's like, oh, because my mind's still fucking firing. So yeah, I just, I got to, I've got to like put it on airplane. Sometimes I got to put it out of the room. Cause I just know myself. And if I go to look up, like if I'm watching a show on Netflix and I think of a question, like, oh, let me look up something. And then I see this little notification for a text. I want to answer it. Now, if you'll notice, I have no other notifications, literally zero other notifications other than text, because I would be a mental case. I hear you, man. I hear you. <laughs> All right. One last question. Personally, how would you describe masculinity? So I just went to, uh, I was with a, a, a team of men last night that I, many of them I know many years and the, I think trust and trust and love and Wow. Just these words like clarity come to me. Like that's what being around, that's what I don't get everywhere else all the time necessarily. Trust, love, clarity, and it's like, I want to just say this masculine love, but like that's describing the word with the word. How do you describe masculine love? I don't know. <laughs> I know it when I feel it. I know it when I see it. In my book, I use the three-dimensional man. Yeah. And I really believe in that. And you want to tell the listeners what that is? so that they... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a three-sided triangle. The first one being labeled Clint for Clint Eastwood, who's a tough guy. And that's one side of us that, yeah, we're tough and strong and we can carry pianos down the stairs into the moving truck but it also means being strong and, and having that discussion or meeting with your wife or your children or people you work with that you know it has to happen but it it could get dicey right they might not like the answer right but you know it has to happen and, and a real man handles that. The other side, another side is curly. And that a man has to have a sense of humor. He can't take life so seriously all the time. And, you know, I, I read, read things that, you know, a belly laugh is... You know, so medicinal, you know, it, it just melts away negativity and depression. And, you know, I, I just find that real valuable, especially when I'm talking to friends of ours that uh, I talk to on a regular basis. I mean, we crack each other up and it helps. It helps a lot. And the other side is Gandhi, which represents the spiritual side and that 
no matter how man looks at it, he's got to have some spirituality in his life. However he wants to define it, whatever his methodology is, but he has to have that connection. And when a man shows all three of those attributes, that's what I call masculinity. A lot of people get into all kinds of definitions and behaviors and all this, what I call garbage. And look, <laughs> men, men are simple, as you know. Yes. And those are simple ways to look at what really constitutes being a man. You know, I'd like to ask you, when you and I, <clears throat> you know, so I did my men's weekend in 96 and was on teams for pretty much up until a couple years ago. You, what about you? What year did you start? March 92. Okay. So back then, even back then, masculinity had this like sort of bad name. And we thought, we as men thought like, well, like, where can the men be men? Like, where is this okay to be men? And now it's even messier and uglier because of, let's just say, some of the worst of us, right? So, you know, the, the, the Me Too movement, you know, woke people up in a way that needed to happen. And as long as there are people in power, they will abuse that power. That's men, women, whoever. That's never going to change. But it does feel like the pendulum may have swung too far. So how do you think we, <clears throat> how do you think we reconcile that where essentially masculine is really a, a dirty word and this term toxic masculinity is thrown out there. So how do we navigate that, Tim? And I address that in my book as, as well, because it happens in personal relationships between men and women and in the workplace, which cuts down productivity and profitability because a man doesn't give a woman the environment, the space to be who she is without talking over her and not accepting who she is. Um, how do we do that? There are a lot of men's groups that have bloomed throughout the country, throughout the world, in person, online, men getting help, men understanding that masculinity is not you know, that heavy-handed, egotistical, chest-thumping man who says, I'm great, it's all about me, and I don't want to hear from you other than, you know, let's go to bed. Right. And, you know, also I have a chapter about, do you have a self-care program? Because I learned early on in 12-step in work that 
man, I, I had no clue what self-care was about. And now it's like, just like you said, you know, sleep and what I eat and everything it is so important that that keeps me sane. And realizing the bottom line is what I started off with, realizing that men can get help. And it's not going to, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter if people think, you know, you're, you're feminine. You're trying to take care of yourself. You're going to reach out those 150 million people in the world who don't ask for help. I want them to reach out, ask for help, talk to their primary care physician, just like you said, hopefully they get a referral to a trusted psychiatrist, right? which is not easy. It took me many psychiatrists to get to the, to the guy who finally told me after four months of research with me that I had depressive, severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring, which, which was driving my addictions. And here's the meds that I want you to take. And ever since then, which is eight, more than eight years ago, I've been sober and I have been my authentic self. Right. And I found this, my purpose in this work, because I don't want others to go through what I went through, being an executive in mid six figure salaries, working at Fox, to losing everything. And having my ex-wife say to me, I'll be glad when you make me your number one priority one day. I'll never forget that. And now I have a relationship with a woman and that's it. I've applied everything I know. And she is. What did she, what did she mean by that? What did, what did you, that, what were you doing? What were you not doing, I guess? What was I doing? I, uh, every alcoholic or addict, the most important thing to them is their next buzz, their next high. Right. So everything else paled in comparison. It's like, move over. I'm Look, this is what's important to me. I don't give a shit about anything else. So that's always stuck with me. And I, I it's so important to me in my current relationship. And you know, my girlfriend appreciates it so much because, you know, she's dated and was married to a bunch of, you know, jerks, right? Who treated her like shit, didn't didn't understand who she was and how great and beautiful she is in so many ways. And I tell her that every day. All right, well, listen. As everybody can see, Matt's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to the community. He's a true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you on our podcast today, Matt. Do you have any final thoughts? That I appreciate uh, coming on. It's great to catch up with you personally and to have this conversation. Uh, and you had me think about some stuff that I haven't thought about. So thanks for doing that. You bet. You bet. It's my honor. 
um, I look forward to continuing our dialogue and so I can learn from you so that I can help others. So thanks again. Listeners, please look for my podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, where you get our pod, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network. And keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. You can contact me for speaking engagements and men's relationship coaching on my website, timcrass.com. And don't forget, have some fun today.